Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And I am introducing the movie this week because I picked it. This week we are doing, we're doing 1986's Gothic. The reason that I picked this is because for the first time in my 20-year career as an English teacher, I am teaching Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I started working on it, preparing it for my class and stuff, and I got so into it. Like, I am just consuming everything Mary Shelley and everything Frankenstein I can because I'm so into it. And I remembered this movie, and I knew what it was about. I knew that this movie was about the night that Mary Shelley conceived the idea for Frankenstein, and I'll talk mm. more about that in a minute. But for whatever reason, I don't think that I had seen it, but now I'm not sure. Looking, Having watched it again, I, I think maybe I've seen it, but really, if that's the case, it shocks me that I don't remember it, because this movie is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is batshit crazy. And I remember this movie very well, because the cover art of the yeah. the poster which then therefore became the the VHS art on the shelves of our local blockbuster right it's very clear it's this demon kind of hunching over this woman who's laying over this thing and and immediately you know the 16 year old Todd is not interested in this movie i think that yeah i think it was the same for me yeah he, he's way more interested in the Slumber Party Massacre, half-naked buxom babes between the two legs of the driller killer with his, you know. He literally looked at this movie and said, nah, this is not for me. This is going to be too whatever. It's going to be too artsy. Highfalutin, yeah. It's too artsy. You right. can tell, right? I know, which is interesting to me because 43... I think I'm 43. 43-year-old Craig looks at that box art, and I'm like, oh, my God, that is so compelling. Right? Like, um, it's Natasha Richardson, who plays Mary Shelley in the movie, like, oh. on her back, draped over a bed with her hair, like, flowing down to the ground, and this little demon perched on her chest. And it's inspired by a famous painting, painting called The Nightmare. Uh, which features prominently in the movie, and the scene on the box art is, you know, a scene directly pulled from the movie. But I think you're right. I think I felt the same way. I was like, no, this is going to be some artsy fartsy period piece. Not interested. Yeah. And so I don't, re I don't recall ever picking it up. But I was excited. Okay, so I was already excited about, you know, the the connection to Frankenstein and all of that stuff. But when you and I talked about it last week after the show, I got even more excited about it because you pointed out that it's directed by Ken Russell, mm. who we've done at least one of his movies before. We did The Lair of the White Worm, is that yes. what it's called? <laughs> Which I had exactly. no interest in seeing. And in the beginning, I'm like, oh, God, this is dumb. And then it just got crazy, and I ended up really liking it <laughs> yeah well full disclosure if you don't know who ken russell is he's a british director and he's the kind of guy that i would have been into in college because i was really into film and i was really into esoteric uh, artsy kind of stuff I, I was seeking the stuff out i didn't happen to hear of ken russell at that time but he is well known for doing all kinds of crazy shit and I admire the guy because I like people who have a singular vision, who follow it unapologetically, and who are artistic and smart and actually have something to say and are not pretentious. And I kind of feel like everything I've seen of Ken Russell so far checks most of those boxes. Like you said, we did uh, Layer of the White Worm, and I think uh, I haven't gone back to listen to our episode on that, but I'm pretty sure that we thought it was quirky and weird and interesting and uh -huh. funny yet we we felt like probably it was a little above our heads <laughs> you know there were things here that this guy had in mind that he was saying that we couldn't possibly cover in an hour-long podcast but it was seriously entertaining regardless and i uh, also watched the film altered states yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, you've probably seen it on the shelves for decades and yeah. heard of it. But I actually ended up watching it here in Beijing in some little film festival that they were doing horror films. And I thought, this is the most bonkers movie 
especially like three quarters in, it's just weird as hell. And yet, I liked it. Mm -hmm. I thought this guy's saying things that, I mean, he's communicating something. Like, art should communicate something, a feelings, emotions, whatever. And despite the fact that I thought the movie kind of went off the rails three quarters of the way through and got stupid, I still felt like I admired this guy and I respected and and I walked away from that experience of watching his movie. I, like, I'm still talking about it today. These are the kind of movies that I think Ken Russell makes. Yeah. He's made a number of films. He's He's done music videos. He's done all kinds of stuff. He's made horror movies. There are a couple that he's made that I'm pretty sure we'll cover on this podcast at some point, just because they're notorious for being extreme and shocking and whatever. I love that. I do, too. He's really unique. That's what I like about him. You know, Julian Sands is in this movie, and he had just come off of the movie that he was nominated or won. I don't remember hmm. an Academy Award for it. It was another period piece. I just had it in my head. Now I'm not going to be able to think of what it is. But he came off of that movie and did this movie, which is also a period piece. And he talked about how the experiences were so different because he talked about how the film that he had made, the first one, the director, everything was so proper and everything was so perfect. Uh, and then he came on to this movie and it was a period piece, much like the first movie that he had done, but this guy's method was just so much more gonzo and it was so much more about trying things and experimenting with things and letting the actors try different things. I could totally see that, yeah. Yeah, me too. And you said something about talking about the experience of seeing altered states. That I would say that about this. This movie is more of an experience, it's an experience. than a movie. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And that's what I actually, this is what I admire so much about this movie is that, so this film is centered around the historical event of Mary Shelley and her friends coming together at Lord Byron's estate and having a party, as they did <laughs> at this time before the internet. And uh, she came away with it, inspired to write Frankenstein, and did. Right. Not only did she come away with it, inspired to write Frankenstein, but one of the other people at this party came away with it, inspired to write a story about vampire, which ended up sort of setting the stage, really, for the gothic vampire tradition and inspiring Bram Stoker's Dracula, among others. So right. it is a singular moment that we can identify in literary history where authors came and it's kind of a magical moment. And so it makes sense to make a story about this moment. Oh my God. And it's such a wonderful story. And Ken Russell had said that he had been interested in making a movie about this story for like a decade. And he had even been given a, another script that told this true story, but it, he just felt like it was just dry. It was just kind of a straight historical kind of thing. Um, and so then when he got this script, he said it was very visual and there was so much that he could do with it visual and he thought that he could make it really scary. I don't know if it's really scary. It's mm -hmm. creepy in parts, but it's an hour and 25 minutes long and really not even that long. If you cut out the credits, it's more like an hour 20. It's a short movie, but it took me at least two hours to watch it. Because yeah, because you were stopping it, right? You're making All notes. the time. You're, yeah, I was literally looking shit up on Wikipedia. Me too. I watched this movie. I was like, I know these are real people. And the things that are coming up in this movie, I'm like, I got to Google that. Uh -huh. Like, I need to know more about these people. And it did not disappoint. That was the thing. This movie, look, I got on IMDb after I watched it. And I looked at the trivia. There are nine trivia points on IMDb. That is way too few. I know. I'm disappointed in humanity. I'm disappointed in the collective consciousness of the internet that there are only nine elements of trivia of this film that requires i don't know 90 this movie is so deep it's juicy it references historical events you're right it's juicy it talks about people it, this is like the entertainment tonight of 1819 you know, exactly like, <laughs> yes. it really is 
<laughs> it is like all of the interesting shit that was going down with these very interesting people who ended up having an impact on literature, on culture, on all this stuff, who came together on this magical night and birthed this thing. Why are there only nine dumb things right. in, in the IMDb trivia about this movie? Ken Russell and his screenwriter, Stephen Volk, are super clever because they managed to weave a lot of interesting historical facts into a screenplay that ends up not only including those historical facts, but being highly entertaining and, in my view, placing you in the moment. I felt like I was there this night with these people who were doing all these drugs. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're drinking this thing called... Laudanum. Yeah, which is... I looked this up, too, because I was super interested. It's like a 10% opium extract uh-huh. mixed with alcohol. Like, these people had no idea what they were doing. Like, right. <laughs> this is the equivalent of, like, mushrooms and LSD. Right, they used to use laudanum to treat opioid addictions. Samuel, <laughs> Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, famous romantic poet, was addicted to opium, sought medical treatment for his addiction, and they prescribed him laudanum, oh which he God. then became incredibly addicted to. <laughs> <laughs> like, what an insane time to document, in a way. But basically, a bunch of people get together for a party. They get super, super high. They themselves come to this party with all this baggage. They're all fucked each other oh my god they've got all these like weird ass relationships that only like super rich british people at this time who had estates and manners and nothing else to do with their time could do uh-huh. then they t- take these drugs and have a party and like go crazy and i have to imagine to be honest with you that their real life experience couldn't have been too far removed from what we saw in this movie. It probably was not. That is what is so fantastic about. I, so, in researching Frankenstein, I'm reading all of this stuff about Mary Shelley, and the thing that always stuck out in my mind was that she wrote. I mean, if you've read Frankenstein, it's so great. <laughs> it is, and I've read it. It's not what you think it's going to be because no. it's not like the Universal movie at all. The Universal movie is just the most exciting part the monster part you know bringing somebody to life and then the monster being scary blah 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 that's really not what the book is about at all in fact in the book the monster is highly articulate intelligent Mm. lonely a totally sympathetic character who has been abandoned by his creator which is what this is all about yeah this movie too anyway great book but i the thing that always stuck out stuck out to me was that mary shelley began writing this book when she was 18 years old it was published when she was 19 but she started reading it when she was 18 unbelievable it is unbelievable but the other thing then if you look more into her life she and her friends were scandalous. Yes. They scandalized Europe. Mary Shelley was 16 when she fell in love with Percy by Shelley, another very famous poet who was already married. They began an affair that carried on and produced a child until his wife died and then they were able to be married. Yes. She was an adulteress. Her son was a bastard. Her husband was a free love guy. You know, this is far Oh from- yeah. Lord Byron was scandalous because of claims of uh, incest and all kinds of crazy Lord shit. Lord Byron didn't give a shit about anything. If you read about Lord Byron, and I watch this movie and I think, yeah, he must have been this way. Like This guy didn't give a shit about anything. He was totally about following his own whims and doing his own thing and whatever. You know what, like... Uh, I don't want to say this out loud, but like, uh, can't find fault with the guy. Like, follow your own path. Well, I'm right. You know, that's the thing. They were they were free thinkers, far ahead know? of their time in a way. Mary Shelley justified her relationship with Shelley by saying, you know, why do we put limitations on love? You love who you love, and marriage or no marriage, be damned. Who cares? They were hippies. Yeah, they were artists. They <laughs> indulged in mind altering substances. Um, and they practiced free love, and they did. And so Byron was not like literally or legally run out of uh, England, but because he was so disreputable socially, he moved for a time to Switzerland. Mm. Mary, I don't remember what her maiden name was, but Mary Shelley, Percy by Shelley, and Mary Shelley's sister all came 
to visit Byron and Mary Shelley's sister was having an affair with Byron. Yeah. And, you know, the, the movie paints this evening as entirely hedonistic, which it may very well have been because they were all about free love and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, it could have been. So, so all of that stuff is true and makes for such a fascinating story. And what happened was this was like historically a really bad summer. There had been some sort of uh, natural occurrence where for whatever reason, the weather was just really bad that summer. And so on their visit, um, the weather was terrible. It was raining. And so they were forced to stay inside and amuse themselves. And so they, they amused themselves by reading German horror stories. Yeah. Phantasmagoria. Right. A French anthology of German horror stories translated and published in 1812. This is the time that we're talking about, yeah. Right, and uh, once they had done that, then uh, the story, who, who came up with the idea? Most people attribute it to Byron. Byron challenged them to see who could write the scariest ghost story, and they didn't sit down and write them all in that night, but it did inspire Mary Shelley to write the short story that she would then expand into the novel that became Frankenstein that she published anonymously because women weren't respected at that time. And the the other guy, the doctor who was there too, Dr. Polidori. Yeah, Dr. Polidori. John Polidori, yeah. He went on to write The Vampire, V-A-M-P-Y-R-E, which is believed to be the first instance of kind of the sexy romantic vampire before they had always been kind of monstrous and like, you know, demony. Um, but he wrote about a vampire who was good looking and charming and seductive. And many believe that that's where Bram Stoker, Bram Stoker was inspired to write Dracula. So it's such a, a, a cool story in itself. Mm. And then this movie tells that story, but then the movie posits a world where they maybe, I don't know, it gets really weird. They may like in coming up with these ideas for these stories, they literally manifest them. <laughs> I think I think that's what the movie wants us to believe. But yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm okay. I know I've been rambling for a long time, but I just wanted to say the first 45 minutes of this movie tells all of that true stuff. And it's fun, and these actors are all great, but as it was getting close to the halfway part, I was thinking, you know, this is fun watching, you know, kind of their hedonistic shenanigans, but we're almost halfway in, and, you know, nothing really scary has really happened or anything. Mm. And then it just got bat shit crazy for the last for, half of the for movie. the last half of the movie <laughs> oh my i was like what is happening and you know a movie is bad shit crazy when you almost just stop taking notes like you i know, know you're just like like what's the point right right I, i'm trying to write down all the interesting things that i find and i'm, I'm i would be pausing the movie every five seconds to write yes. down all the interesting things that are happening and so i kind of stopped but then i felt obligated because i have this podcast so let me just say ken russell i know you're dead now but like it, it was an enormous burden for us to try to make notes <laughs> on your movie because it's so dense and it's so interesting and what better compliment for a director than that right I have two full pages of typed single space notes. <laughs> like, yeah, me too. I never take that many notes. And you're right. I was pausing every five seconds because you would just get flashes of images that would be on the screen for a second or two. And you're like, what is that? What is happening? Yeah. Uh, it's insane. And brilliant dialogue, insightful things everything feels meaningful in this movie i know and i don't even know how we're going to be able to go uh, about talking about it we can't but not in an hour uh it's just so good and and this is one of the horniest movies i have ever seen <laughs> <laughs> there are there are nipples that come alive in this movie let's just put it that way <laughs> these people are the horniest people yeah. ever in the world. Super and, jealous. It, it, they'll just be doing mundane things like reading stories and fondling each other. Yeah. There's a, a full-out orgy. Like, More or less, point. yeah. Uh -huh. and, the one, and the one guy, poor Dr. Polidori, like before they cut to the orgy, you just see Dr. Polidori sitting there looking at something anxiously. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, he's watching them and then, <laughs> and then it cuts to them f 
fucking, and they are. I, I called that. I totally called. That. <laughs> like, uh, we might as well get into the story, but I don't think this is going to be our typical podcast where we can go through everything beat by beat because there are just too many beats. Yeah, honestly, that first forty-five minutes is basically the story that I told, just playing out. There are a couple things I do want to point out, though. Okay. First of all, we've got a, an all-star cast. Julian Sands is uh, Percy Shelley. He's referred to as Shiloh through this by Lord Byron. It was A Room with a View, by the way. A Room with a View was the movie. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. Alba Byron is Gabriel Byrne. Uh, Claire, Mary's half-sister. We've got John Polidori, who was played by... Um, Timothy Spall. Who uh, many people nowadays might know as Peter Pettigrew from the... Um, was that him? Yeah, I, I tr- from the Harry okay. Potter series. Yep, yep, yep. And Mary Shelley, who was obviously... Uh, what's her name? Um, Natasha Richardson. Yeah. Beautiful, talented actress. She was married to Liam Neeson, daughter of... Um, Oh, Vanessa Redgrave uh, yes. died tragically in a skiing accident, which was... Oh, you know, terrible. I'm pretty sure she had kids, and I think, I don't remember, but uh, she was a beautiful, beautiful actress, probably, you know, in the prime of her career at the time of her death. That's too bad. And she's great in this movie. This is her first movie. She is fantastic in this movie. And then the music by Thomas Dolby, and anybody who's really into music, like Thomas Dolby has a long and well-respected career in the musical field, a pioneer of electronic music, really behind the scenes, uh, a huge inspiration for a lot of modern musicians. Uh, and the music in this movie is just fantastic. It's very good. It's so good. It, it just always fits the scene. And and sometimes it feels a little more modern and electronic. Sometimes uh-huh. it feels very old. Appropriate to the period. It's yeah. Just so it feels good. appropriate to the period, but in heightened moments, it does get a little more synthy and modern, but it fits. It, it makes sense. It does serve to heighten those moments. The music is great. It's beautifully shot. There's so much good about this movie. It's absolutely gorgeous in its shooting. You know, it takes place in this big gothic mansion. The rooms that they are in are palatious. Like, they're just enormous. Mm. Uh, And then sometimes they'll be in very confined, like, narrow, dark hallways. And the lighting is beautiful. The costume... I mean, it's a beautiful period movie take all of the horror out of it and it's a beautiful period movie it really is is, i mean you could be you take all the horror out of it and you're some in some sort of jane austen type you know kind of like thing and i I love the fact that it's sort of bookended by this tour group so there's this at the time tour group lord byron's house apparently was very popular at the time and there are these victorian dressed people who are on a boat in the lake or whatever across from the house looking through these binoculars toward the house while the person saying and there ladies and gentlemen on the other side of the lake we have the famous villa Diodati, where lord byron greatest living english poet resides in exile romantic scholar duelist and best-selling author of child harold he was forced to leave his native land after many scandals including incest and adultery with Lady Caroline Lamb. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know, she called him. This gets bookended later on when we get a modern tour group at the very end of the movie doing the very exact same thing. Kind of showing that this thing, not only is it interesting to us now, but it was interesting to the very same people in the past. Right. And then, my God, like, it's just, it, the movie kind of assaults your senses with just weird imagery, which is something that the director tends to do, you know, in his films. Mary Shelley and her crew arrive by canoe <laughs> mm-hmm. amidst the tour group, whatever, across the lake. And immediately there's this cute chase. You know, you imagine these Victorian times. They didn't have a lot to do to entertain themselves, so they got cute and they just entertained themselves you know, by like telling stories and chasing after each other and having affairs and like all this stuff. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I do too. And there's nothing that's really out of the realm of reality in these opening scenes. Not at all. But there there but there's a surreality to it. Yes. Like when they're coming they're coming across the boat and Claire, who is Mary Shelley's uh half sister, 
is like doing the I'm the king of the world thing off the prow of the boat. Mm. Like she's leaning up over the prow <laughs> and they, they and they get off the boat and some young girls come out of nowhere and chase Shelly and take his coat off. And and this is never explained why. Then he throws a peacock and he runs to the house and the <laughs> like it's it's so weird. When they get inside, Byron appears at the top of the stairs stairs in front of a huge portrait of himself yes <laughs> oh my god and then just such such weird things like mary goes upstairs and runs into a giant goat and which has like the goat itself has like giant tits <laughs> yeah so weird. and byron's like oh yeah i don't go anywhere without my menagerie this is true lord byron was an animal lover he had multiple pets both domestic and exotic that he had with him all the time Crazy. Um, we meet uh, Dr. Polidori, who is commissioned to write Byron's biography. Again, historically accurate. And they're all drinking laudanum. And then Byron says something like, sometimes when I look upon a face that I have loved, I only see the changes that death will make. And so he's obsessed with death. Yeah. <sighs> he's just a weird guy. He's a weird He's dude. very enigmatic. He seems to be magnetic. Like yeah. everybody is drawn to him. Everyone's drawn to him. But he's also a dick. It's like <laughs> it's like an intentional eccentricity, right? Like he himself, like does, sort of takes pleasure in the fact that he's a man who doesn't have to worry about shit, right? Like he doesn't need a job. He's got an inheritance. He has this manor, you know. Well, I, I this isn't his manor. I think they rented this place, right? It's but, rented, yeah. Uh-huh. But anyway, like like a lot of people that we read about in literature from this time are of a certain class where they don't have to worry about anything. Right. So they can go off on their fancies and they can, you know, write stories and they can do whatever and and they can be weird and eccentric and free love and whatever and they and they really don't have to worry about anything. So he's got this menagerie, he's got this servant, he's got this guy doing his biography and they're in this fancy place and it's kind of fun to step into this world a little bit and and experience it through them. But in the same sense, he's also cute about it and so <laughs> sometimes but then sometimes he's also violent yeah he's, like, he's like a dick at times claire is um infatuated they're having an affair claire is by the way mary shelley's half-sister she's like a step-sister right. of hers yes remember i'm swiss you beast ah but of course switzerland is a selfish cursed swinish country of brooms it just happens to be placed in the most romantic region in the world <laughs> only the english are more unbearable which is why i am here the imprisoned poet the exile lord the fugitive fugitive from what crime from fact and fantasy Tell the truth, Albert. He's the devil. Show them your cloven hook. She kneels down to take his shoes off, and he kicks her, like, across the room, and she hits her head on a thing by the fireplace, and then he holds her head to the fire, and then they make out. Like, this is the weird dynamic (laughs) of these people. Like, they just are so passionate in every moment, but it usually leads to sex. And like I said, this is the horniest movie ever. They're all like yeah, <laughs> Byron happening. is in all of them, <laughs> except for maybe, maybe he's not Mary Shelley, but the rest of them, yeah, yeah, all of male them. or female, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, and and when I say when I say that this is the horniest movie, like it, it's been hot. I think, <laughs> like, I agree, it's really hedonistic and sexy. And sixteen-year-old me would have worn myself out <laughs> watching this movie. No shit, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> there's there's guy on girl action, guy on guy action, naked Julian Sands more than once looking good like dang yeah it's an erotic film <laughs> it is honestly and this is probably why like uh, you know 10 year old todd was maybe a little turned off by it he could kind of see it by the cover yeah you know, 16 year old todd should have taken a second look at this <laughs> but there's a part there's a part in this you know they're doing these party games i mean if you've they read play hide and seek if you've read victorian era literature you're very familiar with this kind of thing oh you know people get together and you know these these parlor stories and they have these amusements and they play these games and whatever and anyway they do hide and seek while everybody else is running off byron says to john 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 seems very uncomfortable at this the 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 doctor he's like party games and then he says is fear a game and byron you know it's like you will play as long as you are a guest in my house you will play my games and he's like 
Uh, okay. I think I'm going to go off to bed. <laughs> He's John sets himself apart from the group pretty early on and is very uncomfortable. And, and, uh, and that, you know, kind of comes to play later on. But there's this very interesting soundtrack, and we just get this tour de force of the mansion, which might as well be a tour de force of our imagination. I feel like the mansion itself in this movie is is not even a real place. It's just room upon room with fantastical things in it. There's a suit of armor with snakes on it. Somebody stumbles into a room with an automaton. I think it's um it's Percy who who comes into a room. That's kind of dressed up like the Arabian Nights, and there's this automaton. And an automaton, I mean, that's like a robot. It's an like animatronic. A, yeah, yeah, animatronic kind of of the era uh, that is a belly dancer. And she moves back and forth, and then she drops her top, and then she drops her pants, and then he pushes her nipple, and then she drops her underwear, and then he looks at her, and then it kind of swacks her away. It's cute. Well, and it's all it's all very surreal because it's it's, an, all it's supposed to be an animatronic, but that's it's a, it's a person. It's obviously you can a person tell it's a, a person in there, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, for for the movie, yeah, and everyone is going different places. Some people are going to the cellar. Mary Shelley is running around, and the music is just it changes based on where they're going. Number one. We're talking about sort of the genesis of Frankenstein in a way. And so there are lots of moments in this movie that are referencing that and are making that connection. And the fact that they're uh, these mechanical dolls, these sort of creations of man that are nevertheless not natural throughout it are obviously a, a visual reference to that sort of thing. And I thought that was cool. Like there are moments where they cut back to them in the parlor and they're talking amongst these automatons that are playing the piano or whatever, you know, they're kind of right. messing around. Well, the, the game of hide and seek ends with Percy Shelley naked on the roof in a lightning storm. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty pointed. <laughs> You're right. They get him back inside, and then they're all sitting around talking, and he says, lightning is the fundamental force of the universe, the ether, the spirit. And he talks about studying old scientists. I think one of the ones he mentioned was Arippa. These are the occultist scientists that Frankenstein, the, the maker, not the monster, studies in the novel. Mm. So yeah, it's it's really immersing itself in the details of the novel. Shelley talks about how he surrounded himself with the instruments of life and Byron calls him Shelley, the modern Prometheus. Yeah. The original title of Frankenstein is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. It's super interesting. And the whole thing about electricity is interesting because that is uh, really not a product of the novel. Frankenstein does show interest in electricity as a child, but in the novel, he pointedly does not explain how he reanimated the monster. Like, he makes a point of saying, I did it, but I'm not going to tell you how because it was a terrible mistake and I don't want anybody else to do the same thing. So the whole electricity bringing the monster to life is more a product of the movies. They go back in and then they start reading this book. Uh, Byron pulls a book off a shelf and says, hey, this is a little something I picked up somewhere. We should read it. And it's called Phantasmagoria. And this is an actual, like they literally read this book at this time in this historical event. Yep, yep. It's a French anthology of German ghost stories translated anonymously, and it was published in 1812. And phantasmagoria means fantasy or hallucination. And I think that is sort of a driver for how we need to interpret the rest of the film going on and the event of this night. Yeah. They immediately start drinking this laudanum. Uh And everything else that happens to them, it can only be interpreted as their own hallucinations. And it's all rooted deeply in their own problems and issues. So that's what makes the movie so interesting, I think. Mary Shelley, we learn, has had a child that uh, was was um, prematurely born and died. All these things are historical facts. Right. And she's haunted. She was fascinated with creation and birth. Her own mother died in childbirth with her, mm. which haunted her her whole life. And then in her relationship with Shelley, who was the only man that she was ever in a committed relationship with, she was pregnant four times, but only one of those kids survived and only for a while. 
yeah. died, died young. There are huge themes of creationism, birth, you know, uh, be, the, the act of being a creator and creating life. These are huge themes uh, in Frankenstein. It's great. Yeah. Like, and it, it plays out here and it's alluded to, but I feel like if you know the history, it enlightens the experience of the movie. It just makes sure. it even more fascinating to know that this is, it's true and compelling and there's even more to it than the movie has time to divulge. It's, yeah. it's so, I love it. And you know what also I love about this movie is that it talks about the act of invention, not just in the invention of like a monster or whatever, like Frankenstein, but it talks about inventing stories and inventing monsters in your head. At one point, Byron proposes, and again, this is historical, why don't we invent our own ghost stories? And so the rest of the movie revolves around this idea that through their imaginations, they have invented ultimately like this creature that is haunting them. I think it's different for each person here, but in essence, the movie carries through this theme that they have created something through their imaginations and through their hallucinations or whatever, that then therefore they end up feeling like God and that they yes. then, because they're so threatened by their creations, because they're in their hallucinatory state and they're haunted by it, they feel the need to destroy. And that has parallels to number one, Frankenstein, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the Frankenstein story. There's a monster is created, and so the man is God suddenly, but then the creation runs amok, and then they feel the need to destroy it. But then you have sympathy for the creation. You know, it becomes complex. Yeah. It's the same thing with this story, and the same thing with this movie. It's the same thing thematically. By the end of the movie, they're all saying, well, isn't this how God is? Like, he's created his creation, but maybe his creations run amok, and now he wants to destroy his creation, but the creation's too powerful. The creation destroys God itself. You know, it's a threat to God. You know, it's so interesting the way that this plays out in a very real way in in filmic form. I, I Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so too. Uh, and you know, being in the depths of really studying Frankenstein right now, this is just also fascinating to me. But yeah, when they're telling their stories or, or when the contest is suggested, uh, Dr. Polidori suggests a story about a fiend that sucks women dry of their blood. Obviously that will eventually become the vampire. Then they have the orgy hot <laughs> while he while he watches while it's, polidori watches yeah and then like a tree gets struck by lightning and they're fascinated by that i think it's byron it's either byron or percy i don't remember it says something about how it's more exciting to make a ghost than a ghost story mm. And Mary Shelley gets uncomfortable with this conversation for some reason, and and she goes out and she talks to Dr. Polidori about how she lost a child, and she says, I'd give anything to bring that child back again, kind of foreshadowing. And then they have this seance, for lack of a better word. They have a human skull. They all stand around it and hold hands, and Byron says, conjure up your deepest, darkest fears. It's like they're trying, they want to make a ghost or, or something. So Claire convulses like it, it, it looks like she's coming for like yeah. <laughs> 30 seconds. She's, and she's foaming at the mouth. <laughs> but then she's going, stop them, daddy. They're hurting me. What? What uh, is happening? I mean, and she breaks from the circle and falls to the floor, foaming at the mouth. I was not surprised that Claire had daddy issues. I mean, you know yeah, well, it's, the way she's into Byron, it's creepy. It's, uh, it's weird. They take her upstairs, and this is when weird stuff starts happening. Mary says that Claire has had episodes like this since she was a kid. She calls it Claire's Horrors, and she says that there was one time that, you know, she had one of these fits and her bed started shaking. It sounds like she was possessed or something. And then Polidori is super gay for Byron. Like, there's a a, a scene where he, like, snuggles up to him, and he's like, if there's anything I can do for you. (laughs) But then he he totally gets rejected. Like, I felt kind of bad for this guy because it seems implied that before the arrival of these other three, that Byron and Polidori were engaged in an affair. Yeah. 
But with the arrival of these other three, now Byron is distracted by not only Claire, but Byron is clearly super into Percy. <laughs> yeah. And Percy's into it. Yeah, for sure. Well, Paul, <laughs> Percy's kind of into anything, but he's like a free love guy. And again, that tracks sort of historically, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh, Paula Dory is a super sympathetic character in this. I, I particularly enjoyed the scene where Byron and Claire are or are not, I'm actually not sure, hooking up in the room they are. behind his. And Polidori himself seems so distraught by this that there's a crucifix above his bed. I mean, God, man, the symbolism through this movie is just insane. Uh-huh. He's like obviously troubled by his homosexuality or whatever, or religiously, whatever. Anyway, there's this crucifix he kind of takes down from the wall, but there's a nail that's sticking out of the wall. And as the other two are moaning or whatever is going on, he is basically flagellating himself he's hurting himself by slamming his hand repeatedly against that nail in the wall yeah and then he's like sucks his own blood i mean it's so yeah at this point it just gets so weird like i still have over a page of notes but it's just a a series of bizarre things that happen i don't know byron has a weird sex encounter with a servant named justine but he like puts a mask on her and, and calls, calls her by her a, a different name. She call he calls her Augusta. Now, did you read? I don't know how much how deep you read into all this. I I looked into it, but there's a prominent businessman in America named August Byron, and that's all <laughs> I could find. <laughs> no, here's the deal. Um, so Byron and Claire again. It's a theme through this movie that Claire is pregnant with Byron's kid, and Byron is a hundred percent. Not interested in having a child. Right. And then he eats it out of her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was nuts. When Byron shows up with blood on his mouth. Oh, my God. <laughs> After eating her out. I like so I read everything I could find about. It. I read the Wikipedia plot summary. And it's like he eats. He, he performs oral sex, which results in a miscarriage. What? Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> But in reality, uh, Claire had this child. Oh, I didn't know that. Claire had this child. He wanted to kind of name her after him. His name is Alba, and he wanted to call her like Albie or something she wanted to. He insisted that she name their child Augusta. So there is this, uh, this was Augusta Byron. This was the name of this child. And she sadly only lived to be five years old. Jeez. And Claire... It's weird, right? It's like this odd kind of circumstance where Byron didn't want to have this child. Claire ended up having the child anyway. He kind of abandoned her as a father, even though the child ended up going to, you know, had a nanny and had a kind of schooling and whatnot up to five. But the child died of illness. But Claire, for the rest of her life, blamed Byron, sort of felt like Byron's abandonment of his child <laughs> led to her death. And he himself accepted a lot of blame for her death. And uh, in later writings, basically laid this bare and said, yeah, I feel super, super guilty that I abandoned this child and, and I feel responsible for her death. So a lot of that is, I think, reflected in the movie. Like, he's got this this thing. Like, he calls a maid into his room to service him sexually, basically, mm-hmm. but puts a mask on her and calls her Augusta. The movie is very, not only is it sort of purporting to be thematically anyway a historical account of this evening but also it has lots of references to what will happen later yeah like these characters sort of foreshadow their own fates yes and so if you understand and and read about the history you can kind of understand the movie a little better as well yeah yeah that's that's true but again like there's just oh my god there's so much it's going a mess. on it's there's too much I, it, <laughs> no i like it it i love but, it no i'm not saying it's it's too much for us to talk about. That's what I mean. It's going to throw all this stuff at you, and it's not going to go out of its way to explain it. But you know the historical context, or you don't. And I don't think that you need to know it. It's still a fascinating movie, but there are going to be lots of things that happen that you're going to be like, what? Like, it, it, And it's not going to be answered. So Mary looks at some sex book, like a really graphic <laughs> illustrated sex book, and then she finds a sketch of Lord Byron on it and gets super horny. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then she looks at that painting, The Nightmare, and has that dream that she's in it, where there's a little demon, like, perched on her chest, and she wakes up terrified and 
thinks she sees a Frankenstein-type monster outside of her door. Mm. But Percy wakes her up and says it was just a dream, and she's like, no, there's a weird noise outside. Go check it out. So he goes out to the barn, and he sees something, too. He sees some kind of weird creature and a giant spider, and he is then freaked out for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he's kind of gone for most of it. <laughs> he, he comes running in, and he's freaking out to Byron, and he's like, I have narcolepsy, and uh, I never know if I'm, like, asleep and dreaming or awake, and he's freaking out. And Byron, like, caresses him. Percy is, is on the floor, like, clinging to Byron's leg, and Byron tells him, you need to forget about those women. Poets are for each other. And starts kissing his neck. And it's so hot. And then Mary walks in and cock blocks him. And he's (laughs) super mad about it. Oh, God. And then they have a big big fight that also involves making out (laughs) violence and making out and fondling in a pool room. (laughs) I don't know. There's so much... Oh boy, God, I don't know. She, it's she, heightened emotion. It is. The performances, like, this is all nuts, but they are all, they're so good. Like, yeah. they are just giving it a hundred percent. They really are. The uh, performances are intense. These are all very, very talented actors and have all done, you know, other great films and stage work. And um, so they know what they're doing. And uh, it just, it feels very real. Even the violence, I just appreciate stuff like that because that's difficult Mm. for actors to portray um, violence in a believable way. And this feels very natural and real. It's just, it's fantastic. I don't know. She tells Byron that Claire is pregnant and he says Dr. Polidori can do an abortion. Yeah, and then Claire is tits out on the bed, and oh, Byron God. climbs on top of her. Look, <laughs> it, it, it's just insane. I I love the bit where Byron, who's like you know Claire, I see her. I have these visions. I have these dreams. I have these nightmares where Claire's nipples are eyeballs. That's Percy. Percy. He says that he he sees uh, he sees a woman with uh, yeah with eyeballs in her breasts, and he keeps talking about that throughout and he's going nuts and again like there's just a bunch of weird shit going on Uh, i explain he keeps saying it's near i can smell it i smell the decay and they keep finding huge puddles of cum everywhere (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure what that was all about i'm not sure either honestly like but they keep finding them and putting their hands in them i'm like ew rainwater don't don't touch it That catches the moonlight like the trail of a slug. I don't understand that bit. Actually, I would love for somebody to interpret that for me. That bit where they're kind of looking at the attic and they insist there's something up there. Percy and Mary, who have quite a... It's like a 10-minute scene, right? Where they're by the ladder that leads to the attic and they find that thing and... Oh, God. And and he insists there's something up there, but then they get sort of distracted and they go elsewhere. Yet, there is this spotlight on that ladder it's all it's almost like a place they're supposed to go but they never go i i I just (laughs) i can't figure that out for the life of me but uh it's got to mean something in this it's it's lit like a video game like yeah you you know (laughs) you're supposed to go up there (laughs) (laughs) i think that what it's doing is that it's trying to establish that they have physically manifested something yes in what they're doing, and and there literally is something up there. Um, but when they run away, Mary is by herself, and she stands at the bottom of this staircase, and Polidori is standing above her, leaning over the banister, dripping blood over her face. And he claims that he was attacked by a vampire. Both Mary and Percy have seen things, um, but Byron insists that it's just their imagination and he says something like we are gods we are creators Mm. i don't know it gets really trippy it does but but in the same sense like it's like he's saying we are gods we are creators sort of in a in a literary sense like we're manifesting something with our imagination but it becomes a very real thing for these people like this is a danger like we've literally created something that is threatening us and we need to shut it down we need to exercise the demon we need to destroy the skull we need to whatever and i liked that it brought these greater themes of god and humanity (laughs) into things i don't know what to make of all of it but uh it was it felt 
heavy. Well, it, it kind of, but it's also just confusing at this point. It is. Because at this point, honest to God, I could go through them all, and there's a part of me that wants to, but there's just not the time. But like, It cuts to vampy Claire sitting on a pool table, and Percy comes in, and she whips her tits out, and she says, look into my eyes. And he does, and she says, I said, look into my eyes. That was freaky, and he looks down in her boobs, yeah. in their eyeballs and her nipples, and they open up. It was so creepy. And then, like, John runs off, and it's like he's going to kill himself because he's tormented. And, and he puts his head into a noose, and he sits on a horse, and the horse is going to gallop away, and he's going to hang himself. But he didn't even tie the thing, I guess, up in the rafters. So he falls down. But then as the horse runs off, some kind of a demon or Frankenstein's monster yeah jumps down out of the thing and gets on the horse and runs off like what does that mean I don't know <laughs> again know? I th- I think it's just that uh, they have manifested so like you know that that is Frankenstein's monster I think she has manifested it uh, for I don't know or the inspiration for what will be I can't go through that again I can't for God's sake Mary we can do it What we created with our minds, we can destroy. Yes, like God, we have created. And perhaps God, like us, wants to destroy his creatures before they destroy their creator. But God is already dead! (laughs) (laughs) And then there's a whole very heady conversation about it. Yeah. It's here, it's too late, there's no time. Yes, there is time. Must rid of ourselves of our harmful thoughts. Purge. Claire understands. She knows. We must be free. And then Claire runs down the stairs in rewind. Like I have in my note, she runs down the stairs backwards, but which is true, but it's clearly a reverse <laughs> yeah. shot of her running up the stairs that they're playing in reverse. So it's got that surreal, weird things to it. And so then they go looking for her and they find her filthy and naked and crawling around on the ground with a rat in her mouth. Yeah. And Mary says it doesn't even make any sense. She's t- she's terrified of rats. And one of the one of the men says she's telling us that we need to kill our fears. It's coming for us. Empty your minds quietly. Throw out all the hate, the horror. We can wipe it away like waiting for a dream. No, all sorts of immortal thoughts can die. It can die if we join together and we form one mind. China, your hand. It's bleeding with us to destroy it. Don't you see? It's talking to us through Claire. We must! But what if it goes wrong? What, what if we can't get rid of the horror? What if we create more monsters? Love destroys fear. Tell her! Oh, what love between a mad god and the devil? Yes. Yes, I am the devil. Yes, the Mary, mother of Christ. I am the devil that has possessed your lover. Position that destroys like your wife was destroyed by your sodomy. Like every lover you've ever raped. Women, men, boys, and even Augusta. For Christ's sake, Mary. Go on, tell us, my lord, how does it feel to fuck with your own sister? <laughs> this is all very confusing. Byron and crazy. Byron and Shelley are convinced that they need to redo the séance because they can't exercise. They don't believe in God, so they can't send the, the these things that they've created out of their minds. They can't send them to heaven or hell. So what they have to do is they have to banish them back into their minds. Shelley and Byron are all about this. Claire is just swinging naked on a gate Back so they can forth. just grab her right so they can just <laughs> grab her to help out as necessary but mary's not into it i have no idea what's going yeah, on yeah <laughs> in my notes literally all it says pandemonium <laughs> yeah just and crazy shit god happens. like they're doing this thing and it's pandemonium all around and she grabs a huge mary grabs a huge rock and smashes the skull which causes like demon wind i don't know they're like in the catacombs and all of a sudden it's super windy and she tries to stab byron mm. but percy throws his body on byron's and says no and then starts 
passionately making out with him. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hot. Oh, God. Julian Sands and Gabriel Byrne. Oh, boy. (laughs) That was some good stuff. (laughs) Then I don't even know what happens after that. So she, oh, that's what she, so she she runs out and she runs into the goat and then she hears a child's voice calling her and she opens the door and then everything is nuts. I, I don't even know. She goes to like, she sees, she's like in a passageways where there are multiple doors and she pops out of one and John's being consumed by, you know, he's had the poison. By the way, John ended up killing himself in real life. Cockroaches are coming out of his mouth and she's back in the room of the doors and then she's out in a garden where everyone's blindfolded and Byron's like going to lay a little child on something and then she gets pulled back super in. weird. Oh, it's just like 15 different things. And then she falls into the past where she's giving birth and the baby is stillborn. And Percy gets like pulled by in the water uh, by some things. It, and I looked this up because I just knew it. I watched this and I was like, did the real life Percy die in a boating accident? And yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah. That happened. She's, yeah. She sees Byron naked and covered in leeches, which he's scared of. And then, and then she almost jumps off the balcony but Shelly pulls her in and throws her down on the bed they're, they're they're laying together arm in arm in the bed and she says i almost did it if i if i jump off it'll all go away and he says no the storm is over fade to black then it's the next morning and she's sitting in front of her mirror like brushing her hair and she says in vo that our monsters will stay with us until it sees us to our deaths. Mm. And then she walks into the garden past a big cage of baboons. <laughs> yeah. And finds everybody just acting normal. Like chilling in the garden, having a picnic. Dr. Polidori and Byron are sitting together very intimately, like, you know, snuggled up to one another. Both of them seem happy. And Byron says, you're probably tired out from our little night of theater. Uh, but it was it was just the imagination, nothing more. I don't mind that the movie doesn't clearly lay out what happened, if any of it. Like, I'm willing to believe that they were all just stoned mm. and kind of freaking out. That's fine. Maybe it was all a dream. I'm fine with that. Like, I don't care. I would actually rather it be ambiguous. Yeah. But... He asks her, you know, if she was in what what she's thinking about, and then she basically lays out the plot of Frankenstein. Yeah, <laughs> she talks about it's 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 about this creature who is created by a man, but the man abandons him, and um, then the creature is alone, and blah, 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 blah. and it's it's great. I mean, she lays it out exactly as uh, it will eventually play out, and then it jumps, like you said, to the frame story basically of uh, these modern day, you know, 1986 modern day tourists give it, being given a tour of this estate and told all of the true historical salacious stories about these people. Yeah. And basically this serves this voiceover of this tour guide serves as an epilogue because it lays out the fate of all of the characters that we've mm-hmm. been with through the whole movie. And and you've pretty much explained it. But something created that night 170 years ago lives on, still haunting us to this day. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> And it shows uh, like an infant under the water. And then in my notes, I have the end. Holy shit. (laughs) It's just. See, the movie is an experience. It is. It really is an experience. We cannot do it justice. No. Um, In fact, we should have said at the beginning, you should watch this before listening to it. Now I feel bad about that because the movie is really just an experience. Like there's no amount of recapping we can do that would really uh do justice to the film or give you It's not just a plot. It's smart and it's artistic and it is visceral and it's emotional. Visceral is a great word to describe it. It it certainly is. Yeah, and it's never boring and you might I don't know. I guess if you're a cer- of a certain mindset, you're just going to watch the whole thing and you're just going to laugh at it the whole time and say this is ridiculous, this is bonkers, it doesn't make any sense. I laughed out loud several times and I think that that was intentional and it got very mixed reviews, very mixed. Like critics either loved it or hated it. Um 
but the ones who liked it uh, cited its dark humor. For sure. Um, and there are parts where things were so crazy or they would say something so absurd that I laughed out loud and I felt like they knew oh, what yeah. they were doing. I think that was intentional. It touches all the emotions, really, at, 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 at some point or another. It's not a straightforward plot. It's summation, you could just say, dramatization of the night in which Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was born. Yeah. But that's an oversimplification of how dramatized yeah. it is, you know? It's a ride you're going to go on with them. And honestly, I feel like uh, as a proponent of film, as a guy who feels like film reaches us and touches us in ways that other mediums don't, like I feel like it's very successful in taking us on this ride and maybe even giving us the similar experience of what these people went through in their drugged up states, in their inspired states and whatever. Also, with the baggage and weight of all the crazy ass drama, right? human drama that they brought with them to this event. I, I love the fact that this modernized these people for me. Yeah, yeah. And humanized them. Yeah. I mean, it is it is historical fiction, um, but it's it's rooted deeply in reality. I read a quote from Julian Sands. He said, um, I think these portraits are rooted in reality. If people think otherwise, it's because of the later Victorian whitewash of them. Mm. These were not simply beautiful romantic poets. They were subversive, anarchic hedonists pursuing a particular line of amorality. The film portrays Lord Byron as demonic, and Shelley is on the verge of madness, but the film is an expressionist piece, and that's not an unreasonable expression of their realities for sure yeah i think that's great shelly was known as a she was a highly unstable she had multiple breakdowns she had issues and and good for good reason you know she went through serious trauma she had these weird relationships with people not weird but just very different for the time kind of relationships yeah. with people and she was a pariah she was her own father cut off all ties with her because of her relationship with Percy Shelley wouldn't speak to her so yeah she she went through a lot and I'm sure that that you know all, all of those miscarriages growing up without a mother feeling guilt for the death of her mother there was a darkness uh in her that um is expressed beautifully now Frankenstein, as I'm reading it, is not perfect, but it is really, really engaging, and it's a really engaging exploration of the nature of creation and what that means. Uh, and it explores other things too. I mean, it's it's incredibly relevant with the you know dawn of and advancements in AI. You know, like just mm. because you can, should you? Uh, uh, it's it's themes I think are still pertinent um, and relevant today, and I've just really been enjoying it. Like I said, it you have to kind of willingly suspend your disbelief, but if you look at it as um, an exploration of some of those themes, it's really fascinating. And the fact that she wrote it at eighteen boggles my mind. She's far more articulate at eighteen than I at eighteen than I will ever be. Right. How many people of this era were, though? I mean, to be honest, like, they just lived a different life. They had different amusements. I guess. They had different philosophies. I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I agree with you. It just boggles my mind that an 18-year-old could come up with this. But then again, like, people in this age at 13 were already becoming mothers. And, true, and true. the weight of responsibility of parenthood. So perhaps they grew up a little earlier than their years. I know that I came to Frankenstein. Uh, I, I hadn't read the book for ages. I did read the book at one point. But when I was a kid, you know, obviously I was exposed to the Universal Monster story. Uh, I saw I saw the black and white movie because my dad was into black and white movies and, of course, pop culture and all that. It was um, Classics Illustrated, I believe, the comic book series mm -hmm. that took old literature like this and made it into comic books for kids and adults, really. And I read that and I was floored. I could not believe uh, at the... I, was I don't know. I was maybe 10 or 11. But I... I was shocked that the Frankenstein that I knew wasn't the Frankenstein that, that wasn't the original Frankenstein. Yeah. That comic book, in that form, it was very faithful to the book. The themes of it and this idea this guy creates this thing that gets out of control, but the monster is also sympathetic, and then, therefore, the monster gets resentful towards his creator, and then the monster pursues his creator. He murders the creator's bride on her wedding day, and then... And then Frankenstein himself is like pursuing him to all eternity to Antarctica, you know, through the end of time. Right, yeah. Like that 
destroyed me as a child. To this day, it haunts me, this whole story, and the implications of it do. I'm really glad that we're starting off October, you know, our series of, of Halloween horror stories with this (laughs) You know, this kind of thing, like, not only does it have its roots in these sort of classic monsters that we tend to gravitate towards during the season, but it also, it explores it in a way that, like, I think is fun, and we don't do often enough, we don't really pursue, and maybe we'll be new for a lot of our listeners. I think think this is a great way to set off the season, and I'm really glad we did this movie. Thank you so much for finding it. You're welcome, and thank you for uh, indulging me. It was a lot of fun, and I still am just really enjoying this deep dive into all things Mary Shelley. I, um, I don't think that I've ever seen the original Universal Frankenstein, so that may be something we have to check out at some point. It's better than you would think. You know, I think it kind of holds up today, and to a certain extent, thematically anyway. Like, you'd be surprised at how... This kind of old black and white, more or less simplified version of the tale that's uh, supposed to be a little more salacious and exploitative actually gets to the heart of the story and is rather poignant. And then uh, I know in 1994 there was another adaptation, Kenneth Branagh, I don't remember if he directed it, but he he plays Victor Frankenstein and Robert De Niro is the monster. I remember that one. Yeah, I think I saw it when it came out, but I don't remember anything about it, but I've read that it's, you know, uh, a more faithful adaptation uh, of the novel, and I just saw just this morning that there's a movie called Mary Shelley uh, starring one of the the fanning sisters i I can't remember which one wow but that tells the story of her life and in particular this night so still lots of stuff to dive into and i'm looking forward to it but anyway thank you all for listening if you enjoyed this podcast the best thing that you can do for us really is to uh recommend it to a friend we would love to reach an even wider audience or you could leave us uh, a review wherever you find your podcasts as long as you're nice. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to hear from you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're a fan and you want to show us a little bit of monetary support, we do have uh, a Patreon page where we provide, you know, a few little extras for those who want to go that extra mile. We do some mini-sodes and some written reviews and stuff like that. And we love interacting with uh, our community on that page and would love for you to join us if you're so inclined. Until next week, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd with two guys in a chainsaw. Ah.